Glass Podcast. Our international podcast series, Bridging the Divide, Translation and the Art of Empathy, showcases a selection of the best writing in translation from around the world being published this year in the UK by 10 leading independent houses and a guest feature. Today I'm interviewing special guest Christopher McLehose, founder of McLehose Press. He brought W.G. Siebel, Jose Saramago, Haruki Murakami, Claudio Magris, Javier Marias, Peter Hoeg, Henning Mankel, Stig Larsen, and many others to English language readers. He is credited as having launched the best-selling genre of crime fiction in translation, now known as Nordic Noir. This interview is being recorded via Zoom during the COVID-19 lockdown. Good afternoon, Christopher. Your Glasgow-based family was in the bookselling and publishing trade. When you were growing up, what books had an impact on you? Books were, of course, everywhere because my my family's business was indeed bookselling and publishing. But it was by then, <clears throat> more importantly, printing. It was the University Press of Glasgow. So okay. there were many, I thought, very beautifully made beautifully designed books all over the house. And my father was a classicist. So at least half of his library was either in Greek or in Latin. And he went on to become, he took holy orders in the Church of England. So after that, a huge number of religious studies came into the house, into his shows. I think that uh, that was by what we were surrounded. Mm-hmm. All of it made more uh, of an impact on some of the children of whom there were six. One of my first jobs was at the University Press in, in Glasgow. What was your role at the University Press? I was apprenticed to a wonderful man called Willie Bryson, who was, I think he was called the chief editor. And what he did was to do all of the work in preparing books for the press, which should have been done by publishers, but was done at the University Press by people who were very scholarly to the point at which they could even would you believe, proofread in Hebrew. What languages were spoken around you? Are you a linguist? My mother was a German scholar, had been mm-hmm. at the University of Heidelberg. My father, whose family was partly French, her mother. So there were, there were languages, even as also cousins. A little bit like my own family were... Mm. My wife, as you know, speaks many languages, which is a great disadvantage to a would-be linguist. If you're living with somebody who can speak to anybody in any language, even if she doesn't know it, she can speak it. So if you're naturally slothful, you can (laughs) allow languages to go on all around you without learning them as well as one should. After leaving Oxford, was it preordained that you'd go into publishing? What was the book world like? How has the publishing of translations evolved since then? Many young people of my age, I mean, the first thing they wanted to do was to be driving on the railways system. 
And after that, I wanted to become a journalist, which I did. So I went oh. to the Glasgow Herald. I think that before that, I did work in in uh, Pittman's uh, no. publishing. And I, I worked on the Glasgow Herald. Wonderful time. I was there for some years. But that was an evening job. And I thought this wasn't enough. So I went to work at the University Press during the day and worked on the newspaper at night. After the Glasgow Herald, I was taken on by the Scotsman, ran the book pages for three years. And um, I think there, probably unto a great many people's astonishment, we did review books published in French and Italian and German. This, this is in the, the 60s. Middle 60s. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it was a very, a very welcoming newspaper. Mm-hmm. You could do almost anything there. And my, my, my boss was in the alcoholic unit of a hospital for most of those three years. You were, um, <laughs> You were free to do almost everything, and I had a, a series of long articles on the post-war German novel, the post-war Italian novel, and so on and so on and so on. And I was stopped by the editor, whom I hardly knew, in a passage, who said to me one day, Macklehose, let me say just one thing. If there is more than half a page on the North Vietnamese novel in my newspaper, you are fired. Seemed like a reasonable restriction. And this, of course, was during the war in Vietnam. So we, I think we, we pulled that series round about that time because I knew I was happily working with people in the publishing houses in London. And one of them said to me, you know, you really have to come and, and work here. And so right. I did. And my first boss was a magnificent man called Leopold Ulstein. And his mm-hmm. wife was Russian. Mm-hmm. So they published books in translation from German, Russian, French. Um, that what became Barry and Jenkins. And then you were editorial director at Chateau, is that right? I was eventually, yes. Even one of my proudest possessions was, I think I was on the board of the Hogarth Press, but Uh I mean, it was purely nominal. Leonard was still alive at that time. Chateau had taken over the Hogarth Press, founded by Leonard and Virginia Woolf. What was Leonard Woolf like? I uh, found myself living uh, in the same village, uh, Rodmel, in Sussex, as he lived in, and I went to see him, and he was enormously generously welcoming. Couldn't have been kinder. Uh, Very scholarly. um, He would say, for example, Ah, Macklow, yes, I've got books printed by your family, I think, from the 1850 books of poetry printed then by Macklow, a sweet man. So you went from working with Rudolf Ulstein to Chateau and then Harville, always publishing translations. Publishing translations at uh, Barry, to a lesser extent at Chateau, 
what Lord was it, Holman said was, uh, we have translations, and I said, we've got okay. proofs. And she thought Goodness. that was enough. However, <laughs> came into this is not bad. I don't know mm. how the great Swedish translator Mary Sandbach came into my working life, but she appeared and she said she wanted to translate Henrik Tikkanen, Finnish writer, and she did. And I suppose one's own commissioning, although. It, it was interesting. At Barry, it was taken completely for granted that everybody in the uh, in the editorial board would take an active interest in what was being published anywhere else, which would be mm -hmm. in my case on the Scotsman. So we looked at, uh, we read, and if we didn't read, we asked somebody else to read. Russian books, Hungarian books, German books, and so on and so on. And at that time, uh, this is the, the, the second half of the 60s, there were in London still a great many people who had come from Europe, as had Leopold Ostein, as had George Reidenfeld, Deutsch, Fred Warburg, etc., etc. Uh, and they went on publishing as if they were still in Europe before the war. It was taken to be completely normal. So the period, which was perhaps the last decade in which that way of thinking about uh, books in translation mm. existed, and then it more or less disappeared. Um, and very few people, George Weidenfeld went on for much longer, but Leopold retired and then he died. And of course, Andre died and Andre Deutsch <coughs> was no longer a house in which many Hungarians. He did a very kind human being. Oh, he was lovely, Andre. He, he rang me up and he said, you've just a book which I've read, which I like a great deal. It has thousands of mistakes in it. Can I correct them for you? And this was Claudio Magris's um, Daniel. He sent it back with thousands of marks all over it. Every diacritical error was either wasn't there or it was a mistake. So he just, as a gift, handed the corrected text back. Extraordinary thing. Not any publishers either be able to do that or do that now. Can you think of one who might? I can think of two or three. How did Chateau lose Proust? After 50 years, immediately, within hours of Proust going out of copyright. Okay. What about the translations? Well, the Scotland Creek you know, translation will yeah. always belong to Chateau. That was the translation in which nearly every well-bred Frenchman read Proust. It wasn't approved of that you read Proust in French. You had to read him in Scotland, Crease, English. I don't suppose anybody reads in France, anybody reads Proust in any other translation. So post-Proust, what kind of translations were published? I have to say I went to Conin. Uh, they were a Glasgow printer and a London publisher. Very much in the London end of, of that. Very, very different from... 
Chateau, as you can imagine. Billy Collins, I think, had just died, but it went on being that enormously successful commercial publisher a very long time, of which the Harville Press was a part. Harville Press had been acquired by Collins, I think, in the year in which they published both The Leopard and Dr. Zhivago. And they, they probably needed... You know, quite a lot of money to make those books go on. So Collins yeah. arrived and said, "Okay, we'll support you." And it was a separate part of Collins uh, to which I was well, I was ostracised. I was put out of Collins, of which I was publisher. Um, I think they didn't like some of the things that I was doing and some of the things I wasn't doing. I mean, for example, I wouldn't publish Jackie Collins. I thought you can't publish Jackie Collins if you are also the Bible publisher. <laughs> I like Jackie Collins as a person, but it was very easy because we owned Pan, partly owned Pan. It was possible to say to Sonny Matter, who was a publisher with a very finely tuned Catholic taste, he thought, yeah, we can publish Jackie Collins, and which he did. He had the most best-selling authors in the world uh, mm. for a long time. I went with him once to see Sidney Sheldon in Los Angeles, and indeed Jackie Collins. Uh, I don't know what Sonny was doing. <clears throat> Probably he was there to see Jackie Collins, his author. Of course you have worked with some of the greatest translators, and also you've given people their first break and help them become translators. What makes a good translator? You just mentioned the great Swedish translator. I believed that in order to be the best possible translator, you had to be somebody who knew the whole literature mm. from which you were mm. translating. And it followed, to my mind, that you would be a minimum of 70 years old, otherwise how could you possibly have read the whole literature? I stuck to this rule at Harvard for a very long time, where indeed we had, obviously, the best Russian translator in Harry Willits and many other magnificent translators. But a wonderful editor at Harvard called Guido Waldman, who was quite old himself and also did translations from French and Italian, said to me, I, I, I think this rule is silly and I want, to, I want to commission a very young translator from Italian. And I said, Guido, this is surely a mistake. She was, as it happened, the stepdaughter of um, Patrick Krieff, a magnificent Italian translator. Mm. So it was difficult to say no, so obviously one said yes, and she immediately, with what was her first translation, won the Independent Foreign Fiction Award. So, so that was the end of my rule. We have had much younger translators since then. As a consistently passionate advocate of fine literature and translation throughout your career, what, in your view, makes a good translation and what makes it last? I think, to start at the end, it doesn't have to last. There is nothing that says that a book can't be retranslated 
every 15 or 20 years. And if it's a very, very good book, why wouldn't it be? And you have heard a hundred people say that <clears throat> Dr. Zhivago ought to be re-translated because it's filled with errors. There are reasons for that. It was translated by two people, one of whom was the publisher, Manya Harari of Havel, um, along with her great Russian um, counselor, Max Hayward, and they were translating it almost in a race because people were constantly translating simultaneously. They had contract, but nevertheless, other people would do it. So the errors have been pointed out. On the other hand, it reads um, it reads very, very well, and it did sell a million copies. And you think there can't be an enormous amount wrong with it. And of <laughs> yeah. Archibald Cahoon's translation of The Leopard, of which there has, I don't think has ever been a new translation. Mm. Why would there be? It's a perfect work. One of one of the, the the very best, but it was true that in the in the Harvel years uh, we published a great many books from Russian, and Harry Willits, our our greatest translator, Solzhenitsyn's favoured translator, studied everything, corrected everything, made everything as flawless as possible, and I think. What one learned in those years was that there was no limit to the amount of time and uh, attention that a translation deserved. And it should be read by scholars and re-read by scholars, as well as, you said, what, what makes a good translation. One of the things is surely that it's a beautiful work in English, translator's role, mm. and I think an editor can help to take it there. Mm. It has to be, so far as is possible, without an error. Yeah. Um, what we, we keep hearing people say, well, you can't have those um, original translations from Russian. I invariably forget the name. Was she a daughter of David Garnett? The great Russian translator, yes, Constant Skarnet. Uh, she translated Chekhov, Turgenev, Dostoevsky, brought them all to, to, the, to English readers. Gave everybody in the English reading world a whole new light. I thought they were wonderful, yeah. and people constantly complained, so they're full of mistakes. Well, fine. Uh, yeah. <laughs> beautiful English books. How does crime fiction in translation have an important role to play in our changing world? In what way can it help us develop empathy? I worship Raymond Chandler mm. and Dashiell Hammett slightly less, and I'm grateful to them for giving me a whole slice of American culture. You yeah. can read Chandler and you can learn Los Angeles and so yeah. on. I was very lucky when I first went to Collins on my way to Harbour. Uh, I shared with a great friend in American publishing, Joe Fox, a book called Gorky Park. And that was a book that gave you a picture of life, mm -hmm. if you like, in a police station 
in Moscow, which was riveting. Mm. And, of course, it sold a million copies because it was a marvellously contrived story. Mm. You still remember the name of Arkady Renko, the detective uh, in the book. And I thought then that uh, that book, which he was an American journalist, he went to Russia, he researched and researched and researched, and <clears throat> brought back a picture of a society, not just a police unit, which opened something. Those of us who had read a great many Russian books in translation thought we knew all that it was necessary to know about Soviet Russia. But what Martin Cruz Smith, a very American journalist, unraveled, <coughs> gave people something much, much more. And I think that what uh, there have been, as we know, many Scandinavian crime writers who have given readers for the whole of the rest of the world um, a picture of Karin Fossum's Norwegian small town society and eventually Henning Mankell's a very socialist view of Sweden, and Peter Hoag gave a picture of life for Greenlandic immigrants in mm. Copenhagen. It was really interesting mm. that you might never find in literary fiction. Mm. Crime fiction has this possibility that it's yeah. what it's supposed to be and must be, and if it isn't, it doesn't work really readable. So you have in Peter Hoag's work a picture of life in <coughs> in Denmark, life also in, in Greenland. And then, um, as we know, Stieg Larsson gave more and more and more people, because he sold more books than anybody had ever dreamed possible, a picture of life in contemporary Sweden that was absolutely shocking mm. but riveting. People mm. would read it still today. Mm. In 1984, you published Miss Smiller's Feeling for Snow by Peter Hoag, followed by Henning Mankell's Kurt Volander's series in the 90s. He is also known as the father of Nordic Noir. Joan Esbo in the 2000s and Stig Larsson's The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Why do Scandinavians write such great crime fiction? I think the, 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 really the father of what is now Nordic noir is that pair of, uh, of Swedish writers, the man and the woman, who preceded uh, Henning Magor. Uh, Valu. Per Valu. W-A-H-L-O umlaut O umlaut. And my... Cheval, S-J-O-umlaut, V-A-L. And they they were the original Swedish crime-writing bestsellers, and their detective was called Martin Beck. It was published by Penguin, I think. But it, the easy answer is that it's dark in the winter. Everybody tells each other stories. 
It's like blood in the in the vein. I think the the way that stories are told there is it's common to Iceland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, if you like. Of course, Yonesbo is very different from Henning Mangel. Mm-hmm. Um, of course. Because he has a different political philosophy. I, I bought Yonesbo's books uh, before I left Harvard, but I, I didn't, I wasn't there for the the publishing of a very successful mm-hmm. series of books. But you could tell that this writer could fashion a story in a way which exactly like Edgar Allan Poe, totally gripping mm. with detail. A remarkable mm. <coughs> storyteller. That's his ill. Maybe not uh, a stylist. I don't think <coughs> anybody ever accused Stieg Larsson of being a stylist. But nobody can tell mm. the story more gripping than the stories mm. that, um, uh, that, that he told. It's true that uh, in Iceland, I think the young, they grow up uh, with the sagas as the central... Ah, yes, of their, the sagas, yeah. Of, mm. ...of their education. And I think that's true of... Um, of Swedes as well. And I think Henning Mankell, because he was such an extremely human being, uh, managed to embrace an immense uh, readership. And he did have, exactly as Stieg Larsson had, he had a crusading uh, fire in him. He wanted to say something about where the politics of his country were going wrong. And from the mm, very so first his... of the Volando books, uh, you see that. I think he was very disappointed in the way that um, his country turned away from its socialist uh, mm. intentions. And you don't, I think you don't obviously get that uh, to the same extent in what you may call the English crime Fiction. No, I no. have never published. Uh, don't have time to read. Mm. I think if you can read Agatha Christie as a kind of primer, mm. it, it isn't difficult, yeah. and it but, tells you something about England. Whereas Karin Fossum or Henning Mankell tell you an enormous, enormous amount about the yeah. way in which life is led in another yeah. country, mm. very different from yours. Yeah. The key characters of Nordic Noir are invariably emotionally damaged men or countercultural anti-heroines living on the edge who are very real and oddly engaging, offering interesting perspectives. I, there was a word that I was expecting to come <laughs> up in your... Uh, gritty Marlowe. Uh, he had a sort of gritty context. And it's true that there are many of the best detectives are devout alcoholics. How do we explain that? Are you a rebel at heart, Christopher? Generally (coughs) regarded as difficult. You led a successful management buyout of Harville in 95, hit a tricky patch in 2002, and Random House took over. Then you set up MacLehose Press as an independent and were invited back to the corporate fold by Anthony Cheatham, executive chairman of Quercus, but he stepped down in 2009 and launched Head of Zeus in 2012. 
To what extent is this push-me-pull-you dance between the corporate and entrepreneurial independent sectors a reflection of the paradoxical challenge of attempting to reconcile balancing crude commerce with publishing fine literature? I'm really interested by this this new, uh, very independent uh, publishing house called Swift. Um, <laughs> that has emerged yeah. from Profile, which was one of the most successful and really capable independent houses in London. Mm. And Mark Richards from uh, John Murray, where he will be sorely missed. So they set up together. And this is, mm-hmm. I think this is what happens all the time. And it should yeah. happen to young publishers who want to do exactly what they want to do in publishing. Many of the great uh, surviving houses, Faber won, obviously Heinemann once, uh, Chatto once. And Gonance once, actually. And Gonance, and the Bodley Head once, and Jonathan Cape once. If you look at the, if you look at of what Random House, on the one hand, and Penguin, on the other hand, is now made, you see that they contain the backlists of, and the history of, Mm. and indeed the archives of, many, many, many once independent publishing houses. I went once to um, have meetings at Planeta in Barcelona, Mm -hmm. and behind the reception desk there were uh, the logos of the banners of, it seemed to me to be 60 or 70 publishing houses. I was so struck by this image that I took a photograph of this, this, this history of recent Spanish publishing. No sooner had a, a camera in my hand than a, a guard appeared shouting, <laughs> saying, you can't do that. And I said, what can't, he said, you can't take that photograph. He said, because it's, it's private. I said, it's not private, it's publishing. It's what it's what all of these banners are for. And I counted once the number of banners, independent houses that disappeared inside Random House. Mm. And mm. they disappear in a very forcible way, as I discovered at Harvard. Mm. And what is one of the things that I find sad is that they disappear in the way that the, the the publishers, the publishing of, let us say, the Budley Head, Chateau, mm. uh, Jonathan Cape, all still valid and valuable publishing houses, publishing imprints, disappear because every book that is a success or held to be a success by the editors of Vintage disappears into Vintage. It's no longer Chateau. Oh, okay. Second. No longer. Ah, yes. Everything is vintage. And you will see, and it's not like that in America, which is where vintage came from, because mm-hmm. books go on being Pantheon or Shocken or Yeah, Cal- and they have the stamp. Are held in great esteem. Mm. Not so here. Everything becomes a paperback, which is oh, you know, right. the normal yeah. route. Uh, and they last a very long time there, if somebody likes but. They cease to be Jonathan capable. They cease to be the distinction that you could make mm. between, if you like, between Hogarth and Chatter in the old days, 
This was a Hogarth book, and that stood for something. Yeah, and Bodley Head certainly did. Rupert Hard Davis yeah. book. Rupert Hard Davis, absolutely. thing exists no. now because they're all they're all yeah. vintage, and I think that's that's very sad. On the other hand, there is Swift Press, <laughs> which will be part of Faber, and you hope that their paperbacks will go on being Swift paperbacks. Why wouldn't they? I, I, I hope, because I think this homogenization of yeah. very different houses, I think the Bodley Head, which is a wonderful publishing house in London now, as it was in Max Reinhardt's days <clears throat> many, many years ago. Yes, they joined Jonathan Cape and Chatto in what was called CBC and was eventually bought by Random House. But they were distinct. They yeah. had real yeah. validity as, I mean, a Jonathan Cape book not only stood for something, it actually, it, it read differently because they were designed differently, mm. as were the Bodlehead books by John Ryder yeah. or the Chatto books by Nora Smallwood. Everything about them was different. There is a whole new crop of independent small presses, tiny in some instances, who tend to be very niche, like Istros Books, who just do books from the Balkans, or Les Fugitives, who do books by French women writers. Very small, very beautifully produced and translated, rather different books, mould-breaking books. Whether these houses will ever be bought up or merged with a larger house is anyone's guess. They call themselves independents. And then you go up the scale a bit and you have bigger independents like Granter and Scribe who are part of Faber's Independence Alliance. And then on another level up again, you've got Bloomsbury. For people outside the industry, it it's, can be quite confusing. What Maclehose Press stands for is very clear. As a brand, it stands for the best in translation from around the world. And it is arguably the leader of the pack. And it is very clear, therefore, to everyone outside publishing. Um, is it so clear to an outsider what a Cape book is nowadays or what a Chateau book is? What do those imprints and brands represent? The distinctions, and I don't mean the, the quality, but what makes them distinct does, I think, inevitably, within a conglomerate, becomes diffuse. Jonathan Cape, in his own days, designing his books <clears throat> in the yep. way which he wanted to, and choosing in Graham Greene and Tom Mashler uh, people to take that original idea of his on, mm. and holding out their imprint to which, let's say, Ian Fleming on the one hand, Len Dayton on the other, and mm -hmm. Tom Mashler, all of those wonderful illustrated books, and uh, Thomas Pynchon and so many mm. wonderful mm. modern American novelists went because there was a publisher there to whom they gravitated more or less automatically, by all means with the the help of Deborah Rogers, this agent or the agent. That can go on and on and on. The danger comes when if you like Random House in America decides that they want to buy Chateau, Botley Head and Cape and mm. they pay an enormous sum of money to the owners of those individual houses. 
and those individual houses are merged within the random house that we see today, which has, I can be wrong, a minimum of 35 or 40 separate distinct imprints. Mm. And now it's a hugely successful attached, of course, in addition to Penguin, mm. conglomerate machine in which, and this is very important, some of the best publishing still goes on. No better ripping house in London than Alan Lane, the Penguin Press. Absolutely outstanding. Freedom to edit, the freedom to spend as long as it takes to edit mm -hmm. is absolutely crucial. And that, mm -hmm. I mean, that is the case, if you like, at Alan Lane, the Penguin Press, because for one major book, which is in addition an enormous investment of time in terms of advances, in terms of editorial time, in terms of design time and so on, is almost invariably repaid by the work of the sales and marketing department, which sell tens of thousands more of their book than many other publishers sell, if you like, of the same book. So there it really works. This is admirable, and you hope that when people come in to publish, well, you hope that they would all start at Allen Lane, the Penguin Prize, not yeah. waste their time going to any other house, learn what they have to learn, and then go off and do it again elsewhere. Do it again. By all means, because independent, because as you say, those tiny houses and other stories, and Pushkin mm -hmm. Press, <clears throat> not a new press, of course, but it has a new life under uh, yeah. Adam. Um, I think those, uh, it's very, very difficult financially. And in the moment mm. of the plague, which we face now, I've been talking to a Dutch publisher this afternoon who, who says that for all of his colleagues in publishing there, because of the state of the book trade, it is extremely difficult. And we see... Yeah in addition, one American publishing house after the other, making the staff narrower and narrower, and many they have to work for four days a week, be paid for four days a week, mm. it's very hard. And you, you wonder how quickly the appetite to buy books and read books and go out and buy more books will reappear. Book books, they should not have been shut in the first place. Book selling is an essential component mm. of society. It's at least as important as uh, a vegetable shop. But this morning, I'm told by our French bookseller, I asked her for a book published by Gallimard, Tout est bloqué. I mean, I have ordered a shocking number of books from a single independent bookseller recently. Um, and they are struggling, although they keep their shop alive, you can go as a citizen, tap on the door and be delivered your package, but you can't go into the bookshop and no. that's perfectly sensible. Well, yeah, I'm exactly. surprised by our uh, tiny bookshop in the village, which is a wonderful uh, bookshop run by somebody who reads almost everything, mm. is open. Why? Because Monsieur Macron needs the tax on the cigarettes, which they also sell. The French tried to demolish the equivalent of the Net Book Agreement mm. 
And in the course of uh, as long as it survived, a year and a half, 2,000 bookshops died, and Ooh. they stopped it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Costs what a book costs. Mm. Oh. So you would love it if England could change their mind. Is it likely to? Yeah. It is not. According to Mark Chandra in The Bookseller on March the 6th, 2019, statistics showed UK translated fiction is overwhelmingly European, with French making up the highest proportion at 17% of sales. But for books published in the past five years, Norwegian and Swedish authors were most popular with two of your original discoveries, Joe Nesbo and David Lagerkrantz, occupying the top two slots. For you to reach and stay at the top of the mountain of crime fiction, one of the biggest selling genres both online and in bookshops, is a remarkable feat. Is it just a matter of riding the zeitgeist and having a finely tuned instinct? How do you do it? Only one ingredient, and it's called luck. The astonishing fact is that 18 publishers read Stieg Larsson. They had the opportunity to read two, two and a half, maybe three whole volumes in English, and 18 publishers turned him down. And this is one of the bewildering facts. Yes, one can deduce why it might have happened, but it, it's possible to say that it helps to read the book. I, I, I love reading books altogether. I very much enjoy reading crime stories. I cannot believe that any one of those 18 publishers actually read the books. How could they have done? And then yeah. you have the uh, willing to read a translation with a view to turning the translation into a text that people will most happily read. That may take an immense amount of time. We have time as publishers. That time should be spent. Mm. I was lucky enough to have at that moment time. Nobody could have conceived the number of copies that Stieg Larsson sold in any country. The three books that mm -hmm. were written by Stieg Larsson, somewhere between 13 and 14 million copies oh. in the English market. Just the English? In the American market, yeah. something in excess of 50 million. Wow. Uh, it's, uh, it's impressive. And 18 publishers turned him down. Some of them occasionally pause to kick themselves. Editing a translation is a whole other skill. What about when you have a translation that is problematic? Is it better to scrap the whole thing and start again? Or do you completely revise it? And does the translator end up having a complete nervous breakdown? For example, Stig Larsson, what was his translation like? Did you have to do a lot of editing? Months and months and months of editing, <clears throat> partly because really? the translator was an American. It was a pleasure to do. It was done with page by page with one of Stig Larsson's own working editors in mm -hmm. the Norstedt's publishing house. We spent mm -hmm. time together to go through all the pages. She, Helen Senero, now a senior mm -hmm. publisher, vetted every alteration that I made to the original translator's text. And yes, the translator had a nervous breakdown. And what should it do? I had made a, an agreement with Norstedt, who owned the translation, that we could edit it exactly as far as we needed to 
I had worked with that translator's work before. Mm-hmm. So I made that um, a condition of our contract. We bought the translations in English. We shared them with Sonny Mehta at Knopf, and they, uh, I don't think they changed more than a few words. I think at the end of the first uh, Millennium book, Solander throws her Christmas present, which may be a very expensive leather jacket or overcoat, her Christmas present to Mikael Blomqvist, into a skip. Well, the Americans don't know what a skip is, so we changed yeah. the word skip. We're used to working with editors on the other side of the Atlantic. Mm. Over time, it's the most pleasurable and straightforward Mm. exchange of ideas. Sometimes you use their words, sometimes not. But uh, I'm happy to say that the translator earned his translator's royalty on the editions that we sold. No longer alive now, alas, but he did rather well. Amply rewarded. Let it also be said that when he undertook this work, uh, which a handful of English translators neglected to undertake, he was told by the Swedish publisher on the instructions of the Swedish filmmaker who had already bought the series, wonderful people called Yellow Bird, had to do this immediately because they had identified an English uh, film script writer that they wanted to use on their films. So they said, can we have these immediately? So he said he would do them as quickly as he could, and he translated the three, I think we would agree, very long novels mm-hmm. in yes, a year and a bit. The first one. Wow. That's... Which is an extraordinary is... Halfway through... Yeah. The second one, he had a triple bypass operation. So this was a miraculous work. What is the difference between finely written commercial fiction and literary fiction? If you're, uh, let's, you, you have a list to make every year. Uh, you can choose whether you publish, for example, you can choose to publish only illustrated books, only children's books or only non-fiction. But if you're a general house, as we are, uh, we have always said we're going to publish the best books in translation that we can. We publish almost no books in written in English. We publish James Buchan, who is Scottish. You know, that's his distinction, but we don't translate him. But almost nobody else in English. So we look for works of distinction all over the world, and we share many of them with a network of publishers in Europe, some of whom share many of our writers. And the books that you choose will shape year after year a list by which you would become known. We'd love it if there were people all over the English reading world who would say, I only read Macler's press books because they have a certain, I feel safe with them, or I learn from them, Mm. or I really enjoy them and I share them with all my friends. Mm. The reality is that if you do not have the great good luck to publish Stieg Larsen, 
whom David Lagercrantz in his wake, or Henning Mengel, it's very difficult to publish the miraculous Croatian writer Dasha mm. Dindit. You have yes, yes. to do that. Yeah. That's what you are there for. You are there, like the Fourth Estate, to really upset people by publishing this and this and this, which is what Dasha Dindit was one of the great upsetters of people. She wanted to upset mm. more people than any other writer, and that's why one loved her and went on publishing. The commercial pressures have got greater, no? Yes, the, the commercial pressure, as you put it, was very great 40 years ago. You need, you need to have, within a conglomerate, you need to have quite a thick skin. And you also need to be able to... There are now so many literary prizes. You need to be able to come yes. in with a prize every now and again and say, hello, it must work for somebody. Recent hits for MacLehose Press include non-fiction bestseller Norwegian Wood and The Bell in the Lake, the first of a trilogy by Lars Schmitting. Tell us about some of your other world-writing greats in translation for listeners to get gripped by. Which kinds of writing excite you in particular? We, we have, as to Lars initially, uh, one, of the, one of the happiest fruits, if you like, of Norwegian North Sea oil is that the government gives a great deal of money and support to culture of all kinds, books in particular, Norwegian literature abroad. And there came, as regularly they come, uh, a friend, and he went all the way around London, and he came to lunch on the last day that he was there. And I said to him, uh, Oliver, you've been all the way around London, you've told everybody about the new child abuse novel from Oslo. Uh, tell us what is interesting in Norwegian publishing today. And he thought for a second and a half, and he said, well, actually, there's a book on the best-selling list about chopping wood. So I said to myself, yeah. I said, we will buy that book, because I spent my childhood chopping wood. <laughs> and we did. And I don't suppose for one millisecond Anybody thought, I know that the powers that be at Ashet did not think that it would sell more than 800 copies of it. But we, we made a rather lovely book out of it, and I think it, it came at a moment which was exactly right, but it was in addition, as it's a real book about people in the woods, how they look yeah. out for each other, neighbours. Yeah, it's all about other things. Neighbours. Yeah. I think, which is so important. And maybe we have another one we are publishing this year about bees. I, I would love to believe we would sell as many copies of our bees book as we did of Norwegian wood. And why wouldn't we? Uh, as you may know, the Royal Geographical Society has just uh, declared that the bee is yeah. a single most important living yes. being. What other wonderful books have we got to look forward to from MacLehose Press? I reviewed Marie Nidiai's novel La Divine back in 2016. I gather you have another novel by her coming out soon? A book of hers called The Chef, which I love. We are publishing a new Philip Claudel called Dog Island, which I enormously 
We have a new work by Vasily Grossman, the author of Life. Mm -hmm. We have last year's Prix Goncourt winner, which is called <clears throat> Not All Men Live the Same Way by Jean-Paul Dubois, mm -hmm. mostly in Canada. And Pierre Lemaitre, you have another novel of his coming out in 2020? I, I think he's one of the great contemporary storytellers. I, right. I love his work. And indeed, tonight he's on Arte in France, mm -hmm. the Vernon Subutex, Subutex trilogy, yeah. which I, I think have sold a million and a half copies in France. It, Uh, will not have sold a million and a half copies in yeah. in England. It's a, I should say, a remarkable trilogy, and I think it will go on being one of. I mean, I think it will be thought of in the same way as we think of Balzac uh, today. It's a picture of urban society. It's a magnificent picture of a desolate state of contemporary society and its hideous inequality. Mm. I, I think she's I, I think she's one of our outstanding gifts to English readers. Mm -hmm. Very much like the work of Jin Yong, the Chinese oh, yes. um, novelist, who books have sold more millions of copies than any other writer than, that we will ever publish in Chinese. If you could go anywhere in time for one day, where would you go and why? Oh, I think I would spend um, uh, one day with Solzhenitsyn in his um, concentration camp. I would spend one day with Ivan Denisovich. I don't Ooh. think any of us in our country now, even though we are living in the time of the plague, have any idea of what people in our immediate lifetime mm -hmm. suffered. I mm -hmm. had the privilege of publishing his work and many other Russian writers, and I think he's one of the greatest of them all. One day in mm -hmm. the life of Ivan Denisovich is... Um, I, I think it may be the single finest, most important book that I have had anything to do with. I'll tell you a small story before mm -hmm. you disappear. Solzhenitsyn, when he came out eventually, said one day, he said, I want a new edition of that book. Yeah. And I want it to be published by in a translation by Harry Willits. Will you arrange that? I suggest, of course. I said to Harry, this is what the great man has ordained. Will you do it? I will, he said, and I will make it the second best translation that there will ever be of that great book. So, of course, you say to him, what is the best translation? Oh, he said, uh, incomparably the best is the Welsh translation. Harry Willis, said for Harvel in 14 languages, is the only person said that, the Welsh. Your motto? Read the world.
Thank you, Christopher, for a wonderful and very illuminating interview. To find out more about McLehose Press, visit website www.maclehosepress.com. Their Twitter feed is at McLehose Press. This podcast is brought to you by Bookblast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit online journal The Bookblast Diary or find us on Twitter at Bookblast. Special thanks to sound editor Rupert Such, theme tune composer Edward Campbell, and publisher Christopher McLehose for taking the time to do the interview. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of The Book Blast podcast.